0: Well, good morning, everyone. As Chuck Top said this morning, I'm glad we're having church on the inside, not outside. Um, Let me speak just briefly about why we do. Hey, it's good to see you. Welcome home. Um, It's. uh, Let me speak to why we have uh, service on Christmas Day, um, because some of you are wondering, well, why do we do that? You'll see a lot of churches that may not choose to do that, and that's okay. And actually. I guess it'd be 12 years ago now, we made that decision as we kind of saw what was happening. We thought, you know, people want to be with their families and that sort of thing. And so we'll just cancel Christmas Eve service. And what we didn't realize until after the effect was that for many people, this is their family. And we took that away from them. And we said after that, we will never, ever do that again. Because for many people, this is what they look forward to on Christmas Day, being with this family. Not to mention the fact that there are those in our community where Sunday morning on Christmas is maybe the only time they come to church. And so why would we close the doors to them either? So that's a little bit of the reasoning behind why we're doing what we're doing when others in our community may do something different. So just wanted you to know the thought behind that. All right, so as we get started, let's open another gift. And let me remind you, the first week I did this, sweet Lisa Wright uh, was the one who volunteered. The next week, a seventh-grade boy volunteered. So I'd really like to see somebody over the age of 40 volunteer this morning. So who would like to open the gift? All right, thank you very much. Let's open it up and uh, tell me what's inside. And uh, yeah, can you? Like an ornament. Yes. What does it say? Holy Spirit. All right. And uh, is that a gift you've received? Oh, yes. And how has that impacted you? It has changed my life completely. Okay. Is it? You know, the other gifts that we talked about, gift of grace, uh, the gift, uh, what was the first one? Gift of grace, gift of forgiveness. When we talked about those gifts, we said those were gifts that you could receive and then give away. Can you give this one away? Okay, so this one's a little different. Hey, Grant, would you put that on the tree, please? Thanks. This one's different than the other two that we've talked about, isn't it? The gift of grace is something that we can give to others once we've received it. Remember we talked about give out of the grace which he's lavished upon us? The gift of forgiveness, we talked about how we can uh, forgive others just as God in Christ has forgiven us. But when we talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit, it's unique in the fact that we can receive that gift from God, and the Scripture actually calls it a gift, but it's not something that we can in turn give to others. So it's different in that way. But that doesn't mean that from time to time, we don't try to give that gift away anyway. So for example, when we see something that's wrong in someone's life, we might want to give the gift by bringing conviction right? When we see someone or hear someone who has an opinion different than ours, then we might want to give the gift by bringing judgment upon that opinion, right? But in the truth of the matter, um, we can't do that. And it doesn't necessarily have to be spiteful or mean. In fact, I think it happens most often with the people we love. As parents raising teenagers, we want our kids to grow up with strong, solid faith. And when they're not thinking rightly, We want to bring conviction to their heart. We want to speak in a way that that convicts them. If you've got a friend who's heading towards what you feel is a disastrous relationship, you want to speak in a way that they might see the error of their ways. And although our opinion may be right, when it gets down to it, the conviction that comes to our hearts is a work of the Holy Spirit. The only righteous judgment is a work of the Spirit. And so we might be able to receive that gift from God, but it's outside of our influence to do the work of the Spirit in another person's life. And so when we talk about what it means to receive this gift of the Spirit, we want to understand how that plays into how we relate to God and what kind of an impact that's supposed to have on our life. And so that's what we're going to walk through together this morning. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning and look at this gift that you've given us, your Holy Spirit, we pray that we see rightly the things that you intend for us to see and that you would speak to our hearts in ways that help us understand how precious and really amazing this gift really is. And so, Father, give us uh, just hearts that are open to what you might want to teach us through your word this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 36. I don't have uh, the slides done this time, but I do promise to go slow so that we can look at them together. And uh, so let's turn, first of all, to Acts chapter 2. And we'll start in verse 36. As you're turning there, just a little background. This is going to be the words of Peter, not too long after Pentecost. And he's preaching to a mass of people, mainly Jews, there in Jerusalem. And he's used some pretty strong language as he's tried to speak to them about who Christ is and what he came to do. And kind of towards the end of this sermon, if you will, these are the words that he has to say, beginning in verse 36. It says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter has been preaching to his uh, fellow Jews, and he's used some strong words about who Christ is as the Messiah and what they have done in crucifying that Messiah. And because of the work of the Holy Spirit, there's been conviction in their hearts, and they essentially tell Peter, now what do we do? If if what what you're saying is true... How do we respond? And Peter tells them, repent, be baptized, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it is a gift, and it begins with a heart of repentance. That word literally means to change one's mind. But this is not some loose consideration where it's kind of like, "Eh, that sounds like a pretty good option, I'll try that. That's what you do when you choose a flavor of ice cream. (laughs) Not what you do when you choose to follow Jesus Christ. It's actually more like choosing a new diet. Now you probably hear that and go, that doesn't sound much better, but hang with me. I'm not talking about just to have a healthier lifestyle or get in shape, that kind of a diet. I'm talking about a diet that's due to a disease, like type 1 diabetes. And if you don't change your diet, you're going to die. You see, Repentance is choosing a new path because the one you're on leads to death. It's the understanding that Jesus Christ is my only hope. And it's a decision to surrender to him. That's repentance. And then he goes on to say, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. It's A, a belief is what follows repentance. And baptism is that public profession of what you believe. And for the Jew, this would have been a severe test of the sincerity of their faith. Because to profess Christ was to admit that everything that Peter had just said to them was true. That Jesus was the Messiah. That they had crucified him, but that he had risen from the grave. And to decide to stand For Jesus would mean that many of them would stand against family and friends. And in fact, that animosity that still existed towards Jesus, that anger that ultimately crucified him on the cross would now be turned towards them. And they knew that. And so you don't make a decision to follow Christ unless you truly believe that what he did, he did for you. Those are consequences that you don't accept unless you believe. And so baptism is an act of obedience, is an expression of faith. The act itself is not the forgiveness of sins. It is the profession of faith in the one who does forgive sins. Repent, believe. And then he says, receive. Receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is received as a response of genuine faith. It's undeserved. It's unexpected. It's a gift from God. And ultimately, it's a fulfillment of what Jesus promised all along. So let's look at that together. Turn to John's gospel. John chapter 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter sixteen and let's look at verse seven. Jesus has begun in uh, I'm in Luke. See, this is why it's good for me to do this with you because probably some of you are in Luke and you're not going That's not going to make any sense. So, John chapter sixteen, verse seven. Jesus has been describing some things to his disciples that are new to them about him going away, and this has caused them to be. Uh, really unsettled with this idea. So look at what he says in verse seven. He says, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, what Jesus just told his disciples is a pretty amazing statement. He just basically said, it's better for you to have the spirit than for you to have me. Now, how is that possible? And what exactly does Jesus mean? Well, for one thing, Jesus says he cannot send the helper. That's another name for the Holy Spirit until he goes away. He says that there in the middle of verse 7. If I do not go away, the helper shall not come. So the presence of the Spirit only exists after the finished work of Christ. Once that work is done, the Spirit will come. But the Spirit will not come until the work is done. When we say the the finished work of Christ, what we're talking about is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so when Peter's proclaiming the gospel to the fellow Jews, that's what he's talking about. That's what he's telling them. He's telling them about the forgiveness that comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross how he died in order that we might be set free. His burial validates that sacrifice because the scripture is clear and Jesus taught that the wages of sin is death. So the grave confirms his payment. He died. He was buried. And if the grave confirms his payment, then the resurrection announces his victory. Because not only did Jesus pay the penalty of death, he also overcame the power of death. You see, the finished work of Christ has to precede the coming of the Holy Spirit. So, for the Jews and for you and I, when Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away, that may be the biggest understatement in all of Scripture. Because the presence of the Spirit confirms The finished work of Jesus Christ. God took on flesh and dwelt among us, so that God by his spirit may dwell within us. That's what it's all about. God took on flesh in the person and work of Jesus Christ and dwelt among us so that God, through the work of the Spirit, might dwell within us. That's the advantage Jesus is referring to. And it's ultimately what the gospel is all about. It's what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the Romans. Let's look at this together. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. John, then Acts, then Romans chapter 8. Let's look at verse 9 and 10 together. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Paul, writing to the Romans, says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you through the body, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, I want us to look back on that verse and follow Paul's train of thought, because he says some amazing things here. At the very beginning, he says, the Spirit of God dwells in you. You see that in the first part of verse 9? But then, in the same breath, he goes on to say, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. So what he's done here is he has equated the Spirit of God with the Spirit of Christ, and he's saying they're one and the same. And then in verse 10, he says, Christ himself dwells in you. (laughs) So the spirit of Christ and the person of Christ are also one in the same. Paul is teaching us that all these realities are inseparable because they are describing our triune God. And if the spirit of God dwells in you, then that means the very presence of God dwells in you. That's what he goes on to say in verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. That's why it was better, why it was the advantage for Christ to go away so that the very same power that rose Christ from the grave might give life to you. And that power is the presence of God dwelling in you. So when you think about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, don't think about this nameless void, this power. When you think about the Holy Spirit, think about a person. Because the Spirit of God is the presence of God dwelling in you. It is the essence of of who he is. God came and took on flesh to dwell among us, our Emmanuel, God with us, in order that the Spirit of God might come and dwell within us. That's the heart of the gospel. The question is, what difference should that make in our life? Well, I hope we hear that question and think, well, it should probably make a God-sized difference. Difference in our life, right? Well, let's see how that plays out. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So just keep going past Romans and you're going to run into 1 Corinthians. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he's been speaking about the, the riches of who they are in Christ And he speaks in verse 9 about an Old Testament passage, actually in Isaiah. And he quotes it in verse 9 saying, But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So the first thing we learn about the work of the Spirit in our life is that it gives us insight into the heart of God. More specifically, God wants us to know all that He has prepared for those who love Him. I've told you about this story before of my parents and the gift that they gave my family, my brother and his family. Don was with us when they had planned a trip to go to Disney World. Now, our kids had no idea that this was going on. They thought we were just going to Dallas. But what happens is that the morning that we were scheduled to leave, my dad had arranged for a limousine to pick us all up and take us to the airport. (laughs) There's this image I have in my mind that I will never forget. I looked out the window that morning, and my dad was standing by the mailbox. (laughs) And he had his luggage beside him, his video camera in hand, and he could not wait. For those kids to run out the door and see that limousine and find out that they were going to Disney World. All the things that he had prepared ahead of time that they had no idea about, I think he was the most excited kid that day. (laughs) Because he could not wait for them to learn about all the good things that he had planned. And the very same thing is true with God. He cannot wait for us to learn All the things that he has prepared for those who love him. There is no one more excited about that than him. Look at how he continues in verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of men except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. So what we learn about God comes from the heart of God, made known by the Spirit of God. It is a wisdom that does not come from any other source, not books we read, not classes we attend. That'd be like going to someone other than me to find out what I'm thinking about. Verse 11 says, no one knows the thoughts of man, but the spirit of man. So if you want to know what I'm thinking, then you need to ask me. My innermost thoughts are not accessible any other way. So why would it be any different for God? No one knows the heart of God except the spirit of God. And when the spirit of God dwells in you, he freely discloses What is on his heart for you. No one is more excited about that than him. And those things he wants us us to know are are the gifts of our salvation. Paul tells the Ephesians when he says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Remember we talked the other week about how God has uh, given us his uh, grace in accordance with the riches of his grace. And we talked about how when we uses those terms, it's not a part of. It's saying that everything that belongs to him now belongs to you. It's the same idea here. God basically wants us to understand his heart for how we should live. He wants us to know him. Paul takes that thought and he uses it as the foundation of his prayer for the Colossians. So let's look at that together. Colossians chapter 1. Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. I love this passage. one of my all-time favorite passages in, in all of Scripture, and it really is helpful because it gives us an idea of how we should pray. It's almost a prescription for prayer as Paul lines it out as he basically tells the Colossians, this is what I'm praying for you. Look at what he says in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. And here's what they prayed. To ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. See, God wants us to walk in accordance with his will. But not some blind obedience. It says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Basically, God wants us to know how we should live. Why? Because there's goodness built in to his design. Don't you think we would be more willing to to follow God and uh, follow his will if we understood his heart behind it? That's the point. That's what he's communicating. Look at how he goes on in verse 10. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul tells the Ephesians something similar when he says that God created us for good works that he prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. The same idea here in his prayer with the Colossians. God wants us to understand his heart for how we should live. He wants us to bear fruit in every good work, those works that he prepared beforehand so that as we walk in obedience to him, we grow in knowledge of him much like we might grow in an understanding of an artist when we have an appreciation for his painting. Just last night, I was uh, visiting with my dad. They have a Thomas Kincaid painting over their fireplace. It's a beautiful painting of this city scene. I've always admired it, but I never knew the story behind it. My dad went on to explain that when Thomas Kincaid painted this picture, it was a scene from the neighborhood where he grew up. And within that scene are 12 different Phases of his life at different points along time. You see a guy, a little bo- a boy on a, on a bike throwing newspapers because when he was a young boy, that's one of the things he did. You see a, a man and a woman with a little daughter walking down the street, and that was he and his wife, and they're daughter walking down the street. And as you look, you see these different scenes. There's a a church where he grew up and the the families outside the church uh, having gone to church that day. So in all these scenes, you're learning about the life of the man who painted that picture. It's the very same idea when we learn to walk with Christ. We're getting to know the artist who created all those things ahead of time so that we can walk in them. We're getting to know the one who made it all possible. And that's the point. That knowledge is what gives us strength. And in my opinion, there's probably not a better place in all of Scripture to go to to really appreciate that than the book of Psalms. David is consistently talking with sometimes brutal honesty about what life is like and what he's learning along the way. It's not unusual for him to say, you know, when I look around, the wicked seem to prosper. The liars seem to win. And those who are trying to do good, those are the ones getting punished. But then if you'll continue to read, he'll come to the end and he'll say, but here's what I know about God. You're slow to anger. And the reason I know that is because it's been true in my life. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you protect me. And the reason I know that, because that's been true in my life. He goes on and says, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who hope in the Lord. You see, David is writing from his own personal experience of getting to know God in things that he knows to be true. And the more you know God, the more you will be strengthened in your difficult circumstances because that's how you come to understand that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The more you come to know God, the more you are patient with your imperfections. (laughs) Because you realize that he who who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. (laughs) The more you know God, the more you joyfully give thanks for who he is, for what he's done, and for what he's yet to do. That's why Nehemiah could say that the joy of the Lord is my strength. You see, knowing God is at the heart of the gospel. In fact, it's what salvation is all about. It's ultimately what we were created for. We were created to live in a most fulfilling relationship with God. To understand all that he prepared beforehand so that we might walk in him. It's intended to lead us to a place where we know him. Now... That's the heart behind what he says in Romans chapter 15. If you want to look at that, Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Beautiful verse. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. It says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit is what strengthens our belief in what is true about God. It's the fruit of what makes us walk in fellowship with Him. It's the heart of the gospel, because ultimately it's what we were created for, to walk in a relationship with Him and to know Him. Now, when we first began, we talked about how that gift of the Holy Spirit And all the things that we have realized to be true as we've looked at that together is something that we receive, but not necessarily something that we can give away, which doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't have an influence on those around us, because that would be true. And I want us to look at what that is in Galatians chapter 5. Very familiar passage in Galatians chapter 5, looking at the fruit of the Spirit. The evidences of that work in our life, and its influence on those around us. So turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Go eat popcorn. Gee, Galatians. Chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, this is a familiar passage, isn't it? And when we look at those uh, qualities in the first chapter, in the fruit of the Spirit, in verses 22 and 23, I want you to think about the attributes of God. Because I think all too often we look at that list and we say, you know, I should be more patient Or, you know, I should be more loving. And so then we set out to be more patient or or more loving. But I think the problem is, a lot of times, we divorce us from the attributes of God. We divorce those attributes of God from our relationship with God. We cannot be more loving toward others if we do not grow in our experience of God's love for us. The fruit of the Spirit grows out of our relationship with God. It's what happens when we get to know Him. We become like Him. There was a team dinner we had for Graham's basketball team uh, this week. And one of the families is from Alabama. And they have the thickest accent of anybody I've ever met from the South. And their son, David, came in and he was carrying a tray of uh, brownies. And he came up to Terry that night and he said... My mama made us some brownies for dessert. And I thought, you're just like your parents. You talk like them. You act like them. Just this sweet southern style of David and his family. But that's what happens. We become like those that we are related to. Those that we know and we are a part of. The fruit of the Spirit are the attributes of God. And they're seen in our life when we get to know him. So instead of trying to be more loving, we just need to know God more. That's what John tells us. He says, God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God because God abides in him. The more we know God, the more we know love. That's ultimately the answer of how we become more loving. I know one of the things that I often pray for in my life is I want to be more joyful. I see that on there, and I think, you know, that's one of those attributes that I would like to see more evident in my life. I want to be more joyful. And if I'm not careful, and if I divorce that from my relationship with God, then I start looking at circumstances around me to help me be more joyful. I think things like, if I could just get to the mountains more often, I would be more joyful, right? If I could just impact the relationships around me, if those would be a little bit different, then maybe I might be more joyful. (laughs) But what I'm doing is that I'm trying to find joy in what's around me instead of finding joy because of the relationship of the one who is in me. (laughs) See the difference? Joy is the fruit of my relationship with God. If I want to be more joyful, then I need to know Him. And joy will come naturally because of that we could work our way down that list of the fruit of the Spirit and say the same thing about every single one of those evidences of His work in our life. Because the bottom line is this. The fruit of the Spirit is the result of a relationship. And when we walk in the Spirit, we're growing in our relationship with God. So when you think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I want you to think about a person. Because the Spirit of God is the presence of God dwelling in you. It is the essence of who He is. God became flesh and dwelt among us so that God through His Spirit might dwell within us. The heart of the gospel centers on our relationship with Him. That's what it's all about. To know Him and to make Him known. And the more you know Him, the more he will be known in how you live. It will shape you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, just the, the gifts that we've been walking through, the gifts of grace, the gift of forgiveness, and most certainly the gift of your Holy Spirit because that's the center of the gospel. That's the reason you came. That's what we were created for, to know you and to make you known. And so, Father, as we think about that gift of the Holy Spirit, may we not think about some unknown power, but may we think of a person, the presence of God dwelling within us so that the more we know you, the more we exhibit those characteristics, those attributes of who you are in our life, love and joy, peace and patience not something that we acquire by setting out to, to be more like those things. We want to be more like you. And the more we know you, the more we will. So, Father, especially during this holiday season, as we celebrate the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, who came to dwell among us, may we not forget that the whole reason that happened was so that when he finished that work that he was given to do, then the helper would come the very presence of God dwelling within us. May we know you and make you know. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great. Merry Christmas.